Today, uh, we're going to talk about shock. What is shock? So I've seen in movies and TV shows over and over and over again that a character will have a traumatic experience or something, like they'll witness a traumatic experience, and then they'll be all like, like glassy-eyed, just staring, and, the char- and another character will be like, what's wrong with them? And then someone will be like, they're in shock. That is not shock. It's not what shock is. Hollywood constantly gets what gets wrong what shock actually is. So let's just upfront. What is shock? Shock is when the tissues, the demand of your body tissues, all of those cells everywhere, when they are not getting blood flow that they need. They're not getting oxygen. They're not getting nutrients that they need. So the metabolic demands of your tissues are not being met by blood perfusion and oxygenation. That in its most simple form, that's what shock is. Think about like a single cell organism, you know, like a bacteria or something, or, or the, the early genesis of life where life was just like a goop of cells. Every single cell needs to be bathed in nutrients and macromolecules and all these things to survive. Every single cell needs to be bathed in those things. So bacteria just sits there in some sort of nutrient medium that it, you know, whether that's your gut or a petri dish, and it's getting everything it needs to survive. Every single one of your cells, now, no, now, you know, talk about a human being. A human being is a multicellular organism. And a human being, every single one of your cells needs those exact same nutrients. And they need the way that they're bathed with, with some sort of nutrient medium is by, is by blood supply, right? We now have organs that can support, uh, you know, our, the human body is this inc- incredible concerted orchestra where now you have specialized organ systems that are that are helping the entire organism survive and every single cell and organ every single tissue needs nutrients needs oxygen continuously all the time every single organ shock is often associated with low blood pressure that's usually when someone's blood pressure is low that means they've already been in shock and now their body is not able to compensate for that shock and now they're going into low they're having low blood pressure because of that now another side of the coin is when someone's in shock when when those cells are in shock they're not getting adequate blood supply or oxygen or nutrients or whatever those cells can then become stressed and they become hypermetabolic so now they they have a higher even higher demand and now in a new context where where they're getting less flow and now it's it's kind of a downward spiral Shock is extremely, extremely dangerous. It is deadly. It can kill people. It needs to be recognized quickly, and it needs to be uh, intervened upon right away. Shock can affect anybody. It can affect you at home if you get an infection. Um, It can affect a patient that's already hospitalized. And as I said, it can be caused by many different things. I'm going to go over the basic categories. There are four basic categories of shock. And it's extremely important for the clinician to understand the different categories because they all have different treatment paths that you go down. If you don't know what type of shock the person's in, then you may not know how to treat it. And now it is very difficult sometimes to even know what type of shock the person is in. And then furthermore, someone can be in multiple different, different stages of shock that require um, multiple ongoing therapies all at once. So that's what we're going to get into today. As I said, shock can be caused by multiple reasons, but to really zoom out and really broad strokes, one of the main reasons you go into shock is your blood vessels themselves are like little muscles. Your, your, your arteries have, they have muscles in them. They have muscle tissue. They, ex, they contract and they, they loosen up. They, when, they, when they contract, your blood pressure gets high. When they loosen up, your blood pressure gets low. So one of the reasons you can be in shock is your blood vessels stop working appropriately. They're not tightening up appropriate, appropriately. Like, so I'll, I'll turn that, your blood vessels are just kind of too loose. 
And then another reason you go in shock is your pump doesn't work. The actual thing that's circulating blood around your body is your heart, and something is wrong with that. And then another reason you can uh, be in shock is that you there's there's decreased flow for some reason, that there is something in the way in the heart or in the lungs that's obstructing flow through the system, and that, that's sh- causing shock. And then the tank is just not full. You just don't have enough blood to circulate around. So those that's really broad strokes. And these are categorized as distributive shock. That's where your blood vessels are loose, caused by many different things. Cardiogenic shock, the pump doesn't work. Obstructive shock, where there's something in the way of blood flow. And then um, hypovolemic shock. Volemic means volume. Hypo means low volume. That's when the tank, your tank is not full. So I'm going to discuss these, these categories. And there's many subcategories that fit into these. So let's, let's jump into this. The most common type of shock is septic shock. And this is a form of distributive shock where you have loose blood vessels. We also call it vasodilatory shock. Remember, your blood vessels have muscles. They're not tighten, tightening up. And that can be caused by septic shock. What is, what is septic? What is sepsis? Sepsis is where you have an infection that's kind of overwhelming your, your system. And it's uh, associated with um, mounting an inflammatory response. Your white blood cells get, um, you know, get jump into action. It's basically a dysregulated inflammatory response, specifically to an infection, where an infection is now overwhelming your system and your system cannot keep up with it. That is, that's sepsis. Now, you can have sepsis and not be in shock. So someone can be, have totally normal vital signs and, and be in sepsis and not be in septic shock. So sepsis is not necessarily like a, someone needs to be in the intensive care and needs to go to the ICU with sepsis. With septic shock, yes, they do. So with septic shock, remember, what's the definition of shock? You're, you're not, your blood flow is not meeting your demands of your tissue. So now, you're, you're, remember, in, in distributive shock, which is what septic shock is, your blood vessels are too loose. They get vasodilated from, from the sepsis. Um, and now you're not meeting your demands. Septic shock is very dangerous. It has a mortality of 40 to 50% sometimes. And this is associated with, as I said, infection. And it can be, it's, it's oftentimes bacteria. And it's usually where a bacteria is growing somewhere. Maybe it's in your gut. Maybe you got a, a gash on your leg and you, you have festering staph infection of bacteria. And it goes to your bloodstream. That's called being bacteremic when you have bacteria in your bloodstream. And then that can cause the, the shock symptoms where you're no longer meeting your oxygen demands. Um, a marker of shock in general is lactate. So what is lactate? So that's a lab value that we get. Every single one of your, your cells in your bodies uses oxygen, right, to, to metabolize. Your mitochondria in your cells, they use oxygen to function. Now, as I said, shock is where you're no longer meeting your demands. So oxygen delivery is compromised. So what happens is, so that's called aerobic. Aerobic means in an oxygenated environment. So your cells in a normal, healthy state are using aerobic metabolism. When you go into sepsis, you now go into what we call anaerobic in a low oxygen state or no oxygen state. And your cells can start using lactate instead to, um, to boost metabolism in this state. So your, your cells start making more lactate. They start pumping out more lactate. The lactate goes back to, to the liver in something called Cori cycle. The liver spits out more sugar into your, into your system so that you at least have more sugar, more energy to your cells that's available in this stress environment. So a, a high lactate is a, is correlates with under perfusion or a shock state. Um, so, so oftentimes, if you want to find out if someone's in shock, you check for a lactate. So someone in septic shock will oftentimes have a lactate. And we'll say that, you know, in medical jargon, we'll be like, oh, they have a lactate. They have a lactate of five. Um, and that's mil- in millimoles per liter. 
usually like less than two or one is normal, but you know, if you're getting up five, six, 10, 20, 30, that correlates with extremely, extremely sick patients. So what are other forms of distributive shock? Remember, septic shock is distributive shock. Well, there's neurogenic shock. What is that? Again, it's your blood vessels aren't constricting. This is distributive shock we're still talking about. Neurogenic shock, you can have like a traumatic brain injury or a spinal cord injury. Your nervous system is responsible uh, sending nerve uh, signals to your blood vessels to tighten up when they need to. And if you're, if you're in spinal shock or, or traumatic brain injury, that sometimes um, that system can like be on the fritz and not communicate well. And that's neurogenic shock where your blood vessels are just dilated out um, because your, your central nervous system is no longer communicating with the blood vessels. Other examples of distributive shock, anaphylaxis, right? That's why anaphylaxis is dangerous. And this is this anaphylaxis is, is when you have an allergic reaction to something, you know, insect stings or food or drugs. And you now are in that vasodilatory shock where your blood vessels can't tighten up because of this overreactive um, immune response. And now you're in a shock state. You can have a uh, drug or toxin do shock, shock states as well. Not just bacteria, but the... the um, uh, the, what's it called, the toxins that bacteria produce can also cause shock. Another type of distributive shock is um, you, can, you can be in a, a adrenal insufficiency uh, shock. Your adrenal glands make steroids. You must have steroids for your blood vessels to be able to tighten up appropriately. Steroids are also extremely important. You die without steroids. Your body has to have steroids that your body makes, that your adrenals make. If your adrenals are suppressed for some reason, there's many reasons your adrenals can be suppressed. We call it adrenal insufficiency. You can also be in distributive shock. Okay, moving on, the other types of shock. Okay, we just talked about distributive shock. We have three more to talk about. Cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, and um, hypovolemic shock. So cardiogenic shock. And this is easy, right? Cardiogenic means, cardiac means heart. So this is the heart, the pump. It's not working. Your heart, for whatever reason, is not working. You can have a cardiomyopathy, meaning the heart, for some reason, there's many reasons you can have cardiomyopathy is now not working. You can have like a viral cardiomyopathy. You can have chronic cardiomyopathy. You can have a heart attack where you have weakened muscle over time that's been in the works for 10 years, just weakening and weakening um, that the pump. You can have alcoholic cardiomyopathy. You can have methamphetamine-induced cardiomyopathy. The, the list goes on and on and on while the reasons you can have a cardiomyopathy and why your pump is not working. And then this can get worse, and then you can go to cardiogenic shock. You can have arrhythmias, um, that are causing shock state, like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, things like that. Um, so that's kind of, that's basically what cardiogenic shock is. Oh, and, and with cardiogenic shock, you can have valvular problems. You have four different valves in your heart. Something can be wrong with those valves. And either long-term or acutely, you can cause, you can get cardiomyopathy as well from, from valvular disease. Okay, so that well, that's cardiogenic shock. Now the next one is obstructive shock. It, this one's easy, right? Obstruction, you have obstruction of flow. So you can have things in your heart that are causing obstruction of flow. You can have things outside of your heart. You can have things inside your lungs that are obstructing flow. Um, you can have a clot, a blood clot that goes into your lungs and completely stops flow. Remember, the right side of your heart pumps into your lungs, and then that goes into your left side of your heart. If you have a big clot sitting in your lungs, uh, function or sorry, the, the flow can shut down. And now you're in shock, and that's called obstructive shock. You can also have... Uh, it's called tamponade around your heart. That's where the sac around your heart, called the pericardium, gets full of fluid and it gets pressurized. It gets super pressurized and it just compresses the heart like a vice on the heart. That is also a form of obstructive shock. Another form of obstructive shock is like a tension pneumothorax where you have air 
outside of the lung and it, it just keeps filling up, filling up with the air and just pushes your lung and your heart tissue and it compresses them all, that can be obstructive. So these are different forms of obstructive sh um, shock. Notice that they're mechanical in nature. They're mechanical, right? They're not, they're not, uh, they're not, they don't have to do with your blood vessels not being able to dilate or, or constrict. All right, and the last one is hypovolemic shock. Remember, hypo means low, volemic means volume, low volume. Y your tank is not full. Um, the most classic one of this is hemorrhagic shock. Hemorrhagic means to bleed. So someone's in a car accident, they get blunt force trauma, whatever, or penetrating trauma, like a gunshot wound or you know, a car accident, and they bleed out. And now they're in shock. And if you keep bleeding and you're in shock, then you die. Um, so there's, 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 but there's also non-hemorrhagic. You don't have to just be bleeding. You can just have reduced, your tank can just be low for many reasons. Maybe you've had diarrhea for five days. You've been vomiting for seven days. Um, maybe you have you have heat stroke you have and you're you're losing a bunch of fluid that way um, Maybe your kidneys aren't working very well, and you're losing a bunch of fluid through there um, There are different reasons to be in hypovolemic shock the most classic one is hemorrhagic So to review there's four types of shocks right septic or sorry not septic That's a, that's a subcategory of distributive shock distributive shock cardiogenic shock obstructive shock and hypovolemic shock So how do you recognize how do you know which shock state you're in that? is a very, very important question because, as I said, the, the, it's different um, interventions and different therapies for the different type of shock state that you're in. Well, during the different phases of shock, there's, like, there's different stages of it. So there's like pre-shock where it's compensated. Your heart rate is increasing, your blood vessels are tightening up, and you don't even, it's not even clinically, you can't even really see the shock, and, and someone can be totally healthy. Uh, they can appear healthy walking around. But then as someone goes into shock, these compensatory mechanisms, they get overwhelmed. So signs of shock in general are high heart rate um, because you're, that's, it's trying to compensate. by pu Your pump is trying to push more blood out so you have better flow to your organ tissues. Um, bre you're breathing faster because maybe you're trying to breathe off carbon dioxide, get more oxygen in your tissues. Um, you can be sweaty, um, you're, and then you can have very low blood pressure. Your, your urine output can go down. You can have kind of cool, clammy skin. These are all signs of shock. And then, of course, end-stage dysfunction of shock, that's like... All of your organs are shutting down, and then someone can die. So that's you want to prevent, you want to treat before, obviously, before those things are happening. So what are the signs of shock? As I said, so, well, someone's low, someone can have low blood pressure. Someone can have a high lactate. They can have a high heart rate. So you start suspecting these things. And generally, it, you, you, at first, you may not know what the type of shock is. You might be like, uh, they have that they have a urinary tract infection, so maybe they're, they're, they have septic shock from that. But you may not initially know. So it's generally a good idea to give some fluid up front, give some IV fluid to fill their tank up a little bit more. Because even if they're not in um, hypovolemic shock, that will still help their blood circulation just by giving them, it doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, like normal saline. Well, maybe it does. I, I won't get into the topic of normal saline and lactated ringers and all that stuff. I'll just leave that. I'll just call it fluid. So you give fluid. Um, that's generally kind of how you approach it. And then you get blood cultures. You draw the patient's blood, you send it down to the lab, and you put it in a petri dish, and you see if it grows out bacteria in a day or two. You get that right away. And it's a good idea to, if someone you suspect shock, you just start them on broad-spectrum antibiotics. What I mean by broad-spectrum is we have many different types of antibiotics. Some are used, they, they target the organism. You can, you can be infected by many different types of bacteria, right? You can be affected by E. coli, you can be affected by staph, and many, many others. And it's a good idea to, be as, to give the exact antibiotic that targets just that bacteria. That's why you send off culture, so you can identify the bacteria. But right in the early stages, it takes days for that to grow out. The, the 
blood culture. So if someone's in shock, you need to just give them like a shotgun approach rather than a sniper rifle antibiotic. You need, you need to give a shotgun because you don't know what's causing the septic shock if they even are in septic shock, but you just start it. So you start broad spectrum antibiotics and there's, there's several options for that. And then you go about ruling out other signs of infection. Get a chest x-ray. Does it look like they have like something going on in the chest x-ray that looks like they have a pneumonia? Uh, look at their urine if they're having symptoms of a UTI. Otherwise, it's not very helpful. Oh, and then you can go about ruling other types of infections out if they have a history of MRSA or skin infections or if they, if you think they're gallbladder. There's many, many different tissues in your body that, that can be effective. So you go about ruling those out, seeing if other parts of the body need to be cultured, and you start on antibiotics and you give fluid. Now, obviously, if someone's in a car accident and they're bleeding out, you know that's hemorrhagic shock. But obviously, you give them blood. You, just, you give them blood. Give them a blood transfusion, give them platelets, whatever they need. You just give that right away. You give fluid. So sometimes it's it's a little more obvious. Now, so you're you're so again, you don't maybe you're someone's in shock, but you don't know why they're in shock. So maybe you're in, they're in septic shock. Now, after you've given fluid, maybe their blood pressure is still low. At this point, they need to go to the ICU. Um, if after, I mean, I've evaluated lots of patients in the medical wards where you, if you give them some fluid. You identify the bacteria, you start on antibiotics, and boom, within an hour, they're, they're feeling much better. They're good. They can stay in the medical ward. They don't need to come to the ICU. You can be in sepsis. You can have sepsis and be on the medical floor. I say this to people all the time. But if they're now refractory, refractory means not responding. If they're refractory to those therapies and they need higher level, you've got to bring them to the ICU. And, and now if their blood pressure is still so low, and again, their, their perfusion is not meeting the demands of their tissues and their lactate is high, you need to start them on what we, we generally call them pressors. This is um, synthetic adrenaline. And I know in Europe, uh, they, call it, they call it adrenaline and noradrenaline. In the United States, we call it ep, norepinephrine, epinephrine. We also have vasopressin. Um, and there's, there's many different types of pressors that we use. So generally, norepinephrine is the first line that you start for septic shock. You start them on norepinephrine to try to get their blood pressure up. So another lab value that can be helpful in knowing if someone, in, in trying to differentiate what kind of shock they're in, Oftentimes you're trying to figure out if they're in septic or cardiogenic shock. That's sometimes what you want to do. Obstructive shock can be ruled out. I'll get back to that. But one lab that you can get is a central venous oxygen. So central venous oxygen, which we call SCVO2, that's where you, you get a oxygen, you draw a lab blood from a central line, like a, a catheter that's kind of threaded down near their heart. And you draw uh, oxygen saturation from that. And you see what the percent of the hemoglobin is saturated. Normally, it's like it's like seventy percent, and why is that? So, what you're measuring this is the blood that's returning back from your from all of your tissues. It's returning back to the heart to get oxygenated again, and it's seventy percent. It's already it's got seventy seventy percent of the oxygen is still there after it's passed through your body, because there's this buffering room for your for your there's a buffering system. Your body delivers much more oxygen than it actually needs when you're sitting there at rest, and, and that's so that you can consume more at an instant, at a moment instant. I think I've talked about it before. If you have to run away from a bear, um, you, you have that, that immediate oxygen and hemoglobin right there in your body. So anyway, as it's circling back to your heart, it's 70%. It's already high. Now, if it's higher than that, if it's like 80%, that means you're probably in uh, a distributive shock or vasodilatory shock because what can happen is that we call it capillary leak. Uh, the the end the tissues at the very end of your ar arteries to ven you know venous junction where the capillaries are it bypasses it doesn't get to the cells and it comes right back around it doesn't get used up 
um, and then it comes back. So if you're if that SCVO2 is high, that probably that could that's a sign you're in septic shock. If it's low, if it's like 50%, that's a sign of cardiogenic shock because the delivery to the tissues is is low. That can be a nebulous concept. I can explain that in a little more detail in another podcast. But that can be helpful um, to differentiate the shock state that you're in. Now, another thing you can do is you can put an ultrasound in someone's chest. You, uh, and I do this all the time, ultrasound. I, I should do a whole podcast about ultrasound. Um, I, I put up ultrasound, I look at their heart. How well is it pumping? Is it filling up completely? Um, are, are the valves moving appropriately? Is, do I see other problems with the heart? Because that, uh, is, it, you know, is, it, is it not contracting appropriately? Because that, that could raise my suspicion that maybe there's cardiogenic. And I, looking at the ultrasound, like for me as an intensivist, that is not a formal echocardiogram like with a cardiologist, right? I'm not a cardiologist. So you can get a formal ultra, uh, echocardi- echocardiogram to also have a cardiologist take a look at the heart to see if you think, think something is going wrong there as well. Now, depending on what you're seeing, if you think there's cardiogenic shock as well, if that's the main driver, if the LV, if the left ventricle is something wrong with that or the right ventricle, these will affect your management, what kind of pressures you put them on. And then if to, and then the putting an ultrasound in someone's chest will also rule out Things that I mentioned before, a tension pneumothorax with that collapse, that dangerous collapsed lung, or a cardiac tamponade fluid around the heart, like a vice. So you can rule those things out pretty quick. And there's other signs and symptoms you can also look at as well. So you've so you've looked at all these labs. Um, I didn't mention a white count. If someone has a high white count, that could also be a sign that they have an infection as well. But one of the trickiest things is, you know, you 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 gotta treat early. Someone's in shock, you treat them early, you get them on antibiotics early. Sometimes I'll start stress dose steroids in case they have adrenal insufficiency, like I was talking about. Just throw all these things on because these people can, if you're in shock and if you're in septic shock, you can crash and burn really, really quickly. You must act early, you must give fluid early, you must start them on pressors early. One of the challenges is okay, you start all these things and now they're still doing bad. The lactate keeps climbing. They're refractory, right? They're not responding. Um, so that's the challenge and, and you're trying to tease apart is something else going on do they do they have cardiogenic shock um, do they have adrenal insufficiency uh, let's just throw the kitchen sink let's tr- try to pull them out of this maybe they they have thiamine deficiency which is a whole other thing that can be causing a their 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 bod- body to be super acidotic right um, sepsis is associated with your your blood getting more acidotic there's just more acid in your blood because you're not clearing it lactate makes your acid your blood be more acidic um, so this can get very challenging very, very quickly. Most people like uncomplicated septic shock, they should respond in a few hours to antibiotics. They should, if, if they truly, uh, if they are bacteremic, meaning bacteria is floating in their bloodstream, which it shouldn't, right? Bacteria shouldn't be there. Um, they, they respond pretty quick. The antibiotics get into the, the IV antibiotics get into the bloodstream and they start cleaning the infection and they can get better fairly quickly. But sometimes people do really, really bad, and they can die. Their, their organs start shutting down. They go into their liver failure. They go into kidney failure. They need to be put on emergent dialysis. They need to be intubated because they're so, uh, maybe they have an ammonia or they're just so delirious and out of it that they can't control their own airway now. They can, they can get r- bad really, really quickly. Now, the, of course, the end of the line, not the end of the line, but another therapy is putting these patients on ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is that heart-lung bypass machine. In general, sepsis septic shock is not uh, appropriate uh, is not appropriate for ecmo we generally don't put these patients on ecmo however there is some data and some evidence and i know some countries i know in france are if if someone is in septic shock and they go into cardiogenic shock as a consequence of their septic shock we call that stress induced cardiomyopathy 
they may be a candidate to put on ECMO because they because if it's if now what's driving their death is their heart function, the ECMO may may help to prevent that. But for in general, we don't put uh, septic shock patients on ECMO. For cardiogenic shock, particularly if they're a post cardiac patient, like they've uh, cardiac they've had cardiac surgery, certainly putting these patients on ECMO is a is a viable option. Same with pulmonary embolism, right? So I, so let's go back to obstructive shock. Let's say you get a scan, you know, you're trying to figure out what shock state someone's in. You get a scan of their lungs and you see they have a huge lung clot, uh, you know, in their lung, uh, a clot in their lungs. Well, that's, and, and they're dying and they're dying fast and they're on a bunch of pressors. You could certainly put someone like that on VA ECMO, veno arterial ECMO, um, to get them through that. Certainly that they are a good candidate for that. Um, so ECMO is definitely kind of the end of the line options of uh, when someone's in shock to try to pull them out to prevent them from dying. Now, other therapies for obstructive shock that have to do with like a pulmonary embolism, with this, which is a clot that goes to the heart, uh, through the heart and into the lungs, is if that person is really dying. Like if you're coding that person or they're, or they're on a lot of pressors, we can, we can push a medication called uh, TPA, uh, fibrinolytic, which uh, busts up the clot. Like it literally breaks the clot apart. So, and just for some clarification, a blood thinner, like heparin, does not break up existing clot. It prevents more clot from being laid down. So heparin, so if someone has a pulmonary embolism, you always start heparin or, or a blood thinner like bivalrudin or something like that. And that will, that will prevent more clot, but it doesn't get rid of the existing clot. TPA uh, will, actually get, will actually bust up that clot that's there. So I will push TPA if, if we're in an emergent situation, we need to get that clot out of the way because the person's going to die. Otherwise, you know, you can talk to vascular intervention or radiology medicine, uh, and they can go on and they can remove the clot as well um, through various procedures and, and techniques. So that's one way to get that patient out of that. Now, if someone has a, a tension pneumothorax, which is that collapsed lung that's very dangerous, you can put a needle in someone's chest and decompress that in an emergent way, which you must do it emergently, which I have done before, which I think I shared a story like that on this podcast before. Um, and then if someone has a tamponade, which remember is that vice-like fluid around the heart that's pressing the heart, preventing it from pumping properly, you need to do a pericardiocentesis, which is putting a needle up through the sternum to drain that fluid quickly. So those are the kind of the, the therapies for obstructive shocks like um, disease processes. Correction, just backing up, when I said fibrinolytic, I meant uh, lytic, just lytic, just to be correct. I, I probably annoyed some people with that incorrect usage there. So if you ever see meet someone and they have fingers or toes missing or like a foot that's been amputated and you and they explain to you that it's because they were in the ICU they were probably I mean there's there's several reasons that you can have need an amputation but shock being in shock so when we give these medications these pressors that raise your blood pressure and tighten up your blood vessels they also reduce perfusion to your fingers and toes and your fingers and toes can die they can get gangrenous and they can go black I see this frequently Patients that are really sick in shock, uh, when I do my exam of them, I always look at their fingers, and you can see they start to get dusky, and you can tell that their fingers are dying, and their feet are dying. And, and um, oftentimes, they, you just watch that. There's nothing to do as long, you know, obviously, you try to get the, the pressors off, but if they need it, they need it. Otherwise, they're going to die. Um, other, medic, other pressors that I failed to mention are that, you know, if you are really, so if you're really, really escalating things and someone's, gonna, if someone's dying, and I've done this many times, you know, I'll have patients that I, I put on norepinephrine and then vasopressin and, and epinephrine and then, and then, uh, um, and then you're, I've even started angiotensin 2, which is more of a newer medication that can, that can help 
increase someone's blood pressure. And then sometimes we do other drugs like methylene blue or a, a cyanokit. These are all, I mean, we really, really, there's a lot of last-ditch efforts we can do, but I have seen patients that are so sick from septic shock or cardiogenic shock that I've, we're literally layering all these medications and they're still, their blood pressure is still dropping and they're, they're coding and we're doing chest compressions and we can lose them. It can happen. It's, shock is, is extremely dangerous. And for that reason, a clinician needs to understand, number one, what it is, how to differentiate the different shock types and how to treat them. And, and what to do with the fallout from that, from the multi-organ failure, and, and how to explain all of this to a patient's family as this is happening. All right, so that rounds up a uh, discussion about shock. There's, there's much more to say about shock. Like I, you know, I didn't mention PA lines, the swan catheter. There's a lot of flow tracks. There's a lot of other stuff that, that we can discuss um, that you can ask me about and we can talk about later. <clears throat> I, I wanted, so this podcast is way too much of an echo chamber, right? It's just me just talking, which is like, I get sick of hearing my own voice. Um, so I have a, my buddy Craig. He's an immigration lawyer. I really want to get him on the show. Let's give him a call right now, and we're just going to ask him some questions. This is a new segment I want to start. It's called, a, it's called Doctor to Doctor, D2D, with an asterisk, Doc D2D asterisk, because it's, it's one doctor connecting with another doctor, uh, but a, a jurist doctorate. Um, so this is, that's what I guess the segment will be called D2D, doctor to doctor. So let's give, uh, let's give Craig a call. Let's see if we can get him on the line. Let's, and I have some questions for him. Let's, let's see what, uh, let's see, let's see what he's doing. All right. So I tried to get Craig on the line. Couldn't get him. Uh, that was a few weeks ago. Then I come back to this. He also had another baby and he's very, anyway, I can't get him at the, at the moment. So I'm sorry about that. I'm just going to move on to, uh, talking about a book. All right, today let's talk about one of, one of the just best books I've read in a while. It's called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. It's by an economist named Emmanuel Sayez, S-A-E-Z. This was published in 2019. It's about 230 pages. Um, and this book is phenomenal. It's about how the rich dodge taxes. It's a must-read. Um, he really does a remarkable job in this book teaching about the current tax code putting it into context and explaining the ramifications and the significance of the United States tax system. The bottom line is that while the U.S. federal income tax appears progressive, meaning taxes increase as personal income increases, it's actually almost entirely regressive, meaning there is more tax burden on the poor and the working class than the mega rich. There's little doubt at the end of this book when you read it about who our tax code currently benefits. It's obviously the mega rich. So half the U.S. population lives on $18,000 a year, about. Just think about that. 122 million adults make somewhere around 18000 maybe like $25,000 a year, depending on the data you're looking at. Adjusting for inflation, this income has been flat since the 1980s. The middle class currently makes about $75,000 a year. Despite conventional wisdom, the middle class income is not vanishing. The upper middle class, 22 million Americans, make about $220,000 a year. The richest 1% of Americans, which are 2.4 million people, are very, very far from the upper class, making about 1.5 million a year. The top 1% earns almost twice as much income as the entire working class, which is 50 times larger, larger than the top 1%. In 2018, for the first time in 100 years, the top 400 richest Americans paid less taxes than the working class. 
there are very specific reasons for the wealth inequality that we are seeing. It has not been a natural drift, but intentional regulation of taxing and business ushered in the 1980s and perpetuated by every American president since with the capstone of the injustice occurring with Trump's 20% corporate tax plan. The low corporate tax has so many more ramifications than I thought before reading this book. Yes, Trump's tax plan marginally lowered income tax, federal income tax, with a five-year expiration date, but federal income tax is only one tiny, tiny part of the tax story. Only Here's a really important point that Sayas makes. Only people pay taxes. Corporations don't really pay taxes. The people that own a company pay corporate taxes. I know that's kind of obvious, but we think of corporations as this, like, you know, disimpassioned, non-human thing. But corporate taxes affect people. People are paying those. And there are, so there are really only two types of taxes. To really simplify it, taxes down. There are two types of taxes. You know, rather than talking about corporate taxes and income tax, just there's two types of taxes, labor taxes and capital taxes. Labor taxes are income tax, payroll taxes, consumption taxes, health care premiums, which act as a tax on, on employees. Capital taxes are taxed on increased capital, not labor, and these taxes fall to those who don't consume all of their income but save it, invest it, and own companies with that capital. Capital taxes are progressively becoming tax-free. While middle-class income and minimum wage stay the same and payroll and consumption taxes go up, the poor pay a much larger percentage of taxes from their wealth. The rich sidestep those taxes. Multinational companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, motiva motivated by a race to the bottom in, in international competition at the lowest tax rate, pay much less taxes than domestic companies. This is because smaller countries offer them tax-dodging company shells so they can siphon off tax revenue that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Big countries like the U.S. can't provide even lower corporate taxes because we have an enormous amount of companies that would lose tax revenue across the board. And then companies make tax-deductible dedu donations to charitable organiza organizations that they themselves own and control. In the 1980s, tax dodging became virtuous as the libertarian tax is theft ideals you know, gained popularity. Tax dodging grew rapidly and enriched many, a trend that continues to today, including Trump's 2017 tax plan. Globalization facilitates tax sheltering, but only because there is very little international policing and cooperation. These tax havens do not bring production to other countries. Capital taxes have never correlated with labor income. The labor class grew by 2% every year after the 1940s until the 1980s, and since then has only grown by 0.1%. Taxing capital less does not increase labor income. It's a huge take-home. Trickle-down economics has never been proven to be a viable economic strategy and likely causes working-class stagnation. A progressive corporate and wealth tax is critically needed. Multinational companies, multinational company taxes need to be tracked in every country. The huge income taxes of the New Deal era were actually designed to tax only a few enormously wealthy people at that time, not middle or upper class people. The point of taxing the rich is not to create revenue, it's to stop wealth concentration and the power that comes along with that concentration of wealth. Here's the solutions. Institute a wealth tax, have a progressive corporate tax, institute inheritance taxes, estate taxes, and drop 
all labor taxes across the board, including sales taxes. Anyway, I highly recommend this book. It's very palatable, even to someone like me who only has like a very cursory understanding of taxes. I highly, highly recommend it. It's called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodged Taxes and How to Make Them Pay by Emmanuel Sayers. It's also by another author I forgot to mention, Gabriel Zuckman. All right, let's round out this podcast by talking about uh, answering some questions. I'm going to answer some questions from my Instagram feed because I get a lot of DMs there that I can't always answer. I don't always have the time. Um, here's, a, here's a question from a user named Shayon. Um, he or she asks, as an anesthesiologist, before you go into an OR, what are some of the things about the patient you always look at or, or make note of, either from the patient's file or history? It's a really great question. So I look at their entire chart. What do I mean by that is, number one, why are they having this surgery? What, what, what surgery are they having? <laughs> why are they having it? What are the notes leading up to them arriving to this? Like the, the surgical notes, why are they, what, what's the need? Um, do I agree with that need? I'm going to most of the time, right? I'm also not a surgeon. It's not my call to be like, you need this or you don't need that. But, um, you know, sometimes I'm like, eh, do they really need this? Very rarely, you know, usually I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Uh, and then, you know, I, I look at what are the allergies that the patient has, drug allergies. I don't, honestly, I don't care if someone has an allergy to, to like bee venom, something like that. I care if they have an allergy to drugs, to, to medications, because I don't want to give them something that's going to cause anaphylaxis. So I make sure I know what allergies are for every single patient I come in contact with so I don't accidentally harm them. Um, so I look at that. I look at what medications they're on. I look at... Um, the rest of their, a lot of the rest of their notes. I can't look at every single note that's been written on a patient, right? There's years and years of that. So obviously I can't do that. I need to do a focused review of their chart. Um, I look at, I always look to see if there's an echocardiogram to see if they have any heart history, to see if they have, you know, um, like a low ejection fraction, heart failure, if they have pulmonary hypertension, um, uh, because those are things that very, very much impact anesthetic. Many, many, many things impact my anesthetic. I looked, I look at previous anesthesia, notes if there's been an airway if they've ha- if they have a history of a difficult airway i look at what anesthetic drugs have been given to them um, and how how their airway has been inta- uh, been obtained there's just a lot of other diagnostics things that i look at um that are that are very concise that i that i zoom in on what why you know what's going on with this patient currently um, and i do all this all before going and seeing the patient where i then perform a physical exam and talk to them and confirm all these details because charts are often sometimes aren't correct. There might be incorrect information. I review these things. Okay, did you take these medications? Do you really have this diagnosis? Um, you know, I then I talk to the patient and then I formulate a plan and I communicate that plan with my nurse and anesthetist or the resident that's working with me that day. And maybe I have a med student with me. Anyway, that's that's kind of how I go about you know doing a chart review before I see a patient. Anyway, I think that's all I have time for today for this week of this podcast thanks for listening um thanks for leaving a review if you have if you haven't go ahead and leave a review again this podcast is just a public service i don't make any money there's no commercials i i intend to keep it that way that's just something i enjoy doing i hope you enjoy listening um, my email is icudoctorecmo ecmo at gmail.com you can email me with questions i can answer questions from there and then uh i'm on tiktok my handle is icu doc uh, icu doctor and then i'm on instagram and you can dm me there as well i do respond to almost every message that people send me sometimes it takes me a bit Um, and that's icu doctor tiktok on instagram so thanks for listening leave a review share and have a good week thank you